I'd like to welcome you all to this podcast. And today I'm going to continue dealing with the life story of Charles Haswell Campagnac. And in the episode, I plan to deal with his views on uh, hanging as a deterrent back in the 1920s and to the topic of whether there are a different, whether there is a difference between Anglo Indians and Anglo Burmese and finishing off with a discussion about his uh, first election to the Rangoon City Council, of which he eventually became mayor. So let's get started. On the issue of hanging not being a deterrent, Charles says, In my opinion, the death sentence is not a deterrent. Murderers, as a rule, are inordinately vain. A man knows that if he is put on trial for murder, he will attract a great deal of publicity and for a short period be, as it were, the centre of the stage. I know that in Burma, hanging was no deterrent because of the Buddhist belief in the transmigration of souls. The Buddhist believes that if a man's life is cut short by an accident, he will be born again in order to continue the remainder of his life to which he is destined to spend in this world. Jailers have told me it is a common thing when a man has been walked to the scaffold for him to call out to other prisoners under sentence of death. It'll be your turn tomorrow. The chief jailer at Rangoon Central Jail told me of two brothers who were sentenced to death and to and who were to be hung at the same time. He said that the younger brother, just before they reached the platform, said to the elder brother, if I had told the truth, I wouldn't have been here with you today. After that, the jailer told me both brothers went firmly onto the scaffold without flinching. There was a recent case of Usor, who was responsible for, the, for instigating two gunmen to walk into the secretariat in Rangoon, into a room where a cabinet meeting was being held, and to murder the whole cabinet. Usor was hung in public, and photographers were stationed around the gallows to take photographs of the gruesome event. Usor said just before the noose was put around his neck, those who take life should not be afraid to die. I shall now turn to Charles Campagnac's explanation of the difference between Anglo-Indians and Anglo-Burmese. The Anglo-Indians and Anglo-Burmese are two entirely distinct people. In the days when it took six months or more for Englishmen to reach India by sea, many Englishmen settled in India and took to themselves Indian wives. Some of the Indian women belonged to high-class Mohammedan families. Hindu women would marry a European, and when she did, she would be ostracised by her own people. The consequence was that Anglo-Indians knew little or nothing of the Indian people, their ways and customs. The only Indians they came in contact with were the menials who worked in their homes. I think the lines of Kipling are really applicable to an Anglo-Indians. He's a cook's son, duke's son, son of a belted earl. The Anglo-Indians were also descendants of French and Portuguese settlers in India. After the first generation of Anglo-Indians, 
subsequent generations usually intermarried or married Europeans. He then turns to deal with Anglo-Burmans. In Burma, things were entirely different. Most of the Anglo-Burmans in Burma were of the first generation, that is, by English fathers and Burmese mothers. There is no caste system in Burma, and a Burmese woman is free to marry whom she chooses, and when she does marry a European, she does not become cut off from her own people. The fathers of Anglo-Burmans were, for the most part, officials from the English civil service. More than one governor and several judges in Burma had children by Burmese women, and these children, in nearly every case, bore the names of their fathers. A Burmese woman who lives with a man regards herself as being his wife, as she undoubtedly is under Buddhist law. For a woman to be validly married in Burma, it is not necessary that there should be any wedding ceremony. According to Buddhist law, if a man and woman live together as man and wife and eat out of the same pot and are regarded by their neighbours as man and wife, they are lawfully married. Sahavi Adamson, who I have mentioned in connection with the Arnold case, before he married an English wife, had lived with a Burmese wife for a number of years and had children by her. When this became known to Sahavi Adamson's English wife, she used to invite her husband's children to government house and saw to it that his son was given an appointment in the uncovenanted civil service. About Lady Adamson, Lidbetter, who we've heard in the previous episode, wrote a short story about her and he said, A thoroughbred and a winner in three short heats. In this story, he contrasted her with another woman who would not recognise her husband's children by a Burmese wife. Joe Shaw, the son of Sir George Shaw, who was Judicial Commissioner of Upper Burma and officiated for a short time as Governor of Burma, became a High Court judge. The children of these unions used to accompany their mothers to pagodas and take part with them in celebrating Buddhist feast days. Many of the girls wore Burmese costume and often visited their mother's villages where they resided with their Burmese relatives. My wife's mother was Burmese, a descendant of Kin Min Don Min. My wife's aunt lived in a little village near Chortega. My wife and I often visited my wife's aunts and cousins and when they came to Rangoon, they always stayed with us. He notes in the footnote that his great-grandmother, Mary Markin, used to get a stipend from the British government due to her relationship with the Burmese royal family after the banishment of King Tibor to India in 8086 by the British. This stipend died with her generation. As the last section of this episode, I'm going to deal with Charles Kampanyak's election to the Rangoon Municipality and afterwards it became known as the Corporation of Rangoon. He was elected, I think, four times to the municipality or the corporation and was mayor for one year. But here I just want to deal with 
how he got elected for the first time. In 1918, Mr. de Bern asked me whether I'd be prepared to stand for election as a councillor of the Rangoon municipality. He had been a councillor for many years and he said he thought it would be advisable for a younger man to be elected so that he could teach him the ropes. At that time, there was a combined electorate of European, Anglo-Indians, Armenians, Parsis and Jews. I didn't pay any further attention to Mr. de Bern's request that I should offer myself as a candidate for election until he sent me a nomination paper to be filled in. After I'd filed my nomination paper, I was astonished to read in the Rangoon Times that I was not being sponsored by the Anglo-Indian Empire League, of which Mr. de Bern was the president, but that I was standing as an independent candidate. This put my back up and I wrote to the paper saying that I had no intention of standing for the election until I was asked to do so by Mr. de Bern, who had also now sent me a nomination paper to be filled in. But that now I had decided to stand on my own two feet, as I thought it was time for new blood to be introduced into the corporation. This was a very bold thing to do, as Mr. de Bern was a very wealthy and influential man who had been a councillor for many years. My first step was to invite three friends to visit me, and with them I went through the copy of the electoral roll and asked them to mark the names of friends who they thought could be influenced to vote for me. We met several times and eventually I had a list of 400 names. I decided to visit every one of those 400 people, which I did. I told them why I was standing for election and also that I would have no cars to take them to the poll, nor would I issue a manifesto, nor would they see any placards on the walls saying, vote for Campagnac. I said that I relied on their word that they would come to the municipal office on polling day and record their votes for me. There were five seats in the ward, and I impressed upon them that they should not vote for anyone else but me, as if they did vote for any other personal persons, that would mean that I would have little chance of being elected. On polling day, I took a seat in front of the municipal office and checked the people who had promised to vote for me. I had a list of their names in my hand, and as each, each of my voters entered, I crossed his name off my list. By three o'clock in the afternoon, all 400 people who had promised me their votes had polled. I just remained where I was and did not shake hands with any of the other electors arriving as I did not know them. It was at this stage Mr. de Bern came up to me and told me not to be disappointed if I was not elected. He said that he had to offer himself three times as a candidate before being elected, and then he only got in a by-election. I told him that it was immaterial to me whether I was elected or not, and that I had only stood for election because after having been asked to stand, he got his secretary to write a letter to the papers saying I was not standing as a candidate for his association. Just then, an old Englishman came up to me and said, Look here, sitting down in a chair is no way to win an election. He said that he was an old campaigner and that he admired my pluck in standing against so many old stages. He then made me stand by his side at the entrance of the polling booth and introduced me to all the European voters who had come to cast their votes, telling them that I was putting up a plucky fight against the old-timers and asking them to record at least one vote for me. 
When the result of the poll was announced, I had scraped in at the bottom of the poll with 440 votes. That is, here's 400 people and he got 40 from all the other people that turned up. And so started his time on the council or the corporation. I'll finish this uh, episode here and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon uh, with stories from later in his book. Thank you very much for listening.